Right, so we're going to have uh, the second lecture and then the exam at the end of it. Where we left off was the engine that makes this arbitration industry work, which is the New York Convention, which is actually called the United Nations Convention. It was negotiated in New York at the headquarters, so they say New York Convention, but the official title is the United Nations Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. So we noticed last time that the word recognition um, is uh, not superfluous because sometimes the defendant might win or uh, a counterclaim is defeated and somebody might want that to be recognized. It's not an enforcement, but you want, it, uh, you, you want a court to recognize that decision so that you can't be sued under that claim in some court or some other place. Um, it's also called Convention on the Re Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. Now, some people think that's unfortunate, the word foreign. This, these lectures are an introduction to international arbitration, not foreign arbitration. And there were people who wanted that convention to be called to refer to international awards which is actually how lawyers talk about this phenomenon these days. There's an international award. It's coming to be recognized in, in London. You don't say a German award necessarily. You say it's an international arbitration, and the seat was in Germany, and here comes the award to be enforced in London. But technically, under this convention, it's a foreign award. Uh, those who will get... It's an important thing to understand. What's the distinction between international and foreign? Uh, a foreign award has a nationality. It's the nationality of some foreign state. That's what makes it foreign. That has some legal consequences. There's also perhaps kind of a, a cultural slash attitudinal consequence. Most of us have a little problem with things that are foreign. And we don't understand it that well. Not sure. We like it very much until somebody explains it to us. And so when you're presenting an award to a judge and you call it a foreign judge, he knows it's not one of his. Whereas we all like international, don't we? we we're part of the international world and we're good international citizens and we be, believe in international law. It kind of would be nicer if these things would be called international awards, apart from the legal point, which I'll need to get into uh, at, at somewhat greater depth. There's also, there are, there are a few very practical, right, so the word recognition uh, means something and the word foreign is an interesting and some would say unfortunate. The world was not ready for a treaty on international awards in 1958 and perhaps it is now uh, but it's very difficult to Imagine having a new convention. It takes a long time to, to negotiate, and it might be even, you know, you never know one of these international conferences. They might, they might write a worse one. You know, this one is pretty good, so perhaps we should leave it alone. Uh, but there are some practical things to, to, to think about this uh, as well. Let's, let's go through um, a few things. I, I asked you to, to reflect on why the New York Convention, notwithstanding its long name is not long, en long enough. It's missing something. 
which is obvious if you read it. If you read it, you will realize that the title doesn't actually uh, cover what's in this short convention. And what's that? Arbitration yes. Agreement. Arbitration agreement. agreement. It should be called the New York, the, the United Nations Convention on the Recognition of Foreign, of, I guess, Foreign Arbitration Agreements. It probably would have been better just to say arbitration agreements and foreign arbitral awards. It didn't. And yet, the article is there that talks about respecting arbitration agreements. Which article is that? Number two. Now, um, and which is the one about enforcement? Five. No. Four. Four. Does anybody ever talk about four? No, why not? Because that's the easy one. It just says you have to enforce. And five says? Yeah. It says unless. So what does everybody argue about? Five. So the two big um, professor uh, Vandenberg uh, collects all the national decisions under the New York Convention. Who applies the New York Convention? National courts. It's a treaty under which states that sign the treaty commit themselves to treat arbitration agreements and arbitration awards in a certain way. They commit to respect arbitration agreements and arbitration awards. And who? The government? No. Courts. That's the only way you can make it stick. That's, that's the point of the convention. So uh, Professor Albert Jan Vandenberg collects all the national decisions that he can get his hands on and they're published in something called the ICCA, ICCA Yearbook, the International Council for Commercial Arbitration. Let's see how good your practical logic is. Which do you think gives rise to more litigation, Article 2 or Article 5? Hmm? Because? Because 5.1 gives... Uh the other party where the uh, against whom the award is being enforced reasons to challenge it. And, and if the arbitration agreement is not valid, or if uh, uh, I mean the arbitrator I mean, uh, regarding the arbitrator or it was not given proper notice for the hearing. Yes, but that doesn't tell me why there is going to be more court litigation about Article Five than Article Two. You are the defendant, and you take the position that the arbitration agreement is invalid, and I start an arbitration against you. You might complain to the arbitrator, but you might also say, since I think the arbitration agreement is invalid, who is this alleged arbitrator? He's nobody. He's just a, he's just a guy who's meddling in my business. I will go to court, and I will insist that the case should be held in court. And if anybody says anything about arbitration, I say the arbitration is invalid. And then we're right in Article 2. And we're having an argument about Article 2. That's the same case you were talking about. That somebody who's actually lost the case and says, well, the arbitration agreement was invalid. He might have said that earlier. Like two or three years earlier when the case was starting. So the same fact pattern actually logically leads to a debate under Article 2 in court way before there is an arbitration and way before there is an arbitration award. So actually, there are that's the reason why 
you expect to see quite a lot of debates under Article 2. And you can sort of flip it a bit because you can also understand practically why that fact, the existence of Article 2, precludes a number of debates under Article 5 for a couple of reasons. One is a totally practical reason. You have a debate under Article 2. The party that wants arbitration loses that debate. So there's not going to be an arbitration. End of story. You're never going to hear about Article 5 because there will never be an arbitration award to enforce. Right? Quite logical. Alternatively, the party that wants arbitration wins. The objection is overruled. So you will have an arbitration. But it takes a while. And what often happens in the course of disputes? The parties settle. So there's not going to be an argument about the arbitration award because there is no arbitration award. But even beyond that, put on your lawyer hat. There is an arbitration. There is an award. The losing party doesn't pay it up. So you go into court. And I'm telling you, there still isn't going to be a debate about Article 5. Why? What are you going to say? You're the defendant. You lost. You want to pay? And what are you going to tell the court? You just told us? Uh, uh, yeah. And that's not, that argument is not going to be heard. Why? You already said that three years ago. And it was decided by hypothesis. That's the, that's the scenario I'm imagining. It's already been decided. And therefore? Because it is? Bravo. So you see, when you think it through, you would expect that there would be more instances of judicial debates about Article 2 than Article 5. And lo and behold, uh, the statistics seem to bear that out. A lot of cases under Article, article 2. Plenty under Article 5 as well. Uh, Article 5 contains other things than just uh, the invalidity of the arbitration agreement, such as a failure of due process in the arbitration. Now, that you couldn't have argued on day one because there hasn't been an arbitration yet, so the arbitrator has not screwed up the procedure yet. Uh, so uh, there are plenty of cases under Article 5 as well. Do we know anything, logically, about the defendants who want to raise objections under Article 5? Sounds like a really stupid question. Do we know anything about them in general? Yes, and so they haven't paid up, and so they are being pursued in courts. And the winning party says, I want the New York Convention to be applied. And that tells me something about who that defendant is likely to be. Does it sound, sound like a mental sort of trick question? <coughs> It belongs, yes, 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 we should, of course. I'll tell you that it's likely that that party is the local person. Is the local person. Good friends with the judge. I didn't mean that, but that party is actually now, 
Remember the Finnish and the French we started with? You get a neutral decision maker, which is the arbitrator. And now we get to the enforcement stage. It is likely that we are in that party's home port. French or Finnish. Actually speaking French or Finnish. Everything has to be translated. And so now the defendant has a bit of an advantage. How do we get to this position? Why is that so? Obvious reason? Because assets allocated in that state. There are multinational corporations that have assets everywhere, but not everybody is a multinational corporation. And so quite the natural place to find somebody's assets is where they're from. So the local judge sees a foreigner coming in wanting to enforce an award against his fellow citizen. That I, I often use the uh, metaphor that it is very easy. You know, do, you, do you love arbitration? Your Honor, Judge, do you love international arbitration? Yes, 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 we respect. And do you like the New York Convention? Yes, we respect the New York Convention. Okay, and I say, it's very easy to love a beautiful child. You have a five-year-old who plays the piano and is very polite and you're just so happy. But what if your child is a truculent teenager who sort of hangs out with the wrong people and embarrasses you and you're called into school and all that stuff and you love this child? So do you love this award which is coming from a foreign country? Foreign? It's being relied upon by a foreigner who is not employing any people in your city? Um, who is presenting an award in a foreign language, the text of which is organized in kind of a weird way. It doesn't look like one of your judgments. I'll make it worse. Could be applying your law. The parties agreed that wherever I'm from, French law applies. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know what, where they got their ideas about French law. Who are these arbitrators? Ah, yes. A Finnish arbitrator? A German arbitrator and a French arbitrator, named by the French party. So the French, the French arbitrator should understand French law, right? Yeah, I guess he did. He dissented. So he wrote an opinion about why this case is, has been decided completely wrongly. And his dissenting opinion is written in beautiful French to begin with, and it is organized the way the judge would do it, and it reads just like one of the judge's judgments. That's that's something that's easy to love. And here you have a majority decision written in English, which has been translated, and they sort of try to get their minds around the French civil code, and it just is kind of hard to understand. And here is this award. So we can add to it. Let's make it for a very large amount of money, which will turn the local company bankrupt. And so if it employs a hundred of the two hundred people in this little town, it's a kind of a tough thing to like. <laughs> Would you predict, wouldn't you predict, that in the early years of the New York Convention's life, there would be a lot of problems enforcing awards? And you'd be right. And you can see that in country after country. Um, Then something happens. The judge says, no, I don't like it. And we'll find anything. Now, if all else fails, he'll say, public policy. Rejects the award. And then there's an appeal. 
And then you get up to the appellate level, and you get some other thinking about it, saying, hold on, this is not the first time we see a treaty. No, that local judge might never have seen a treaty before in his life. That local uh, uh, judge might have been sentencing a drug dealer the day before, and tomorrow he's sitting in a child custody case. And today, he's looking at the New York Convention, first time ever, and he sees this ugly thing, and he doesn't like it. So we get up to appeal, and we get another degree of sophistication, including thinking that, well, all right, this is not, a bad, this is not good news for this particular French company, but they agreed to arbitration, and there was a decision, and there's a neutral fellow from Germany in the middle, and this is what, this is what they decided. <coughs> and the next time, it might be a French party that wins an arbitration. And then I want the Finnish courts to give the French party that money, or wherever it is that the French party wants to enforce the award. This is a two-edged sword. And if we don't, in our country, don't respect the New York Convention, if every time we try to find ways of squirreling out of it, there probably will be a similar reaction in other places as well, and the system will break down. So there has to be a loyal application of the New York Convention. <coughs> but there were quite a few teething problems early on in the life of the New York Convention for, for the re these reasons that we, we can easily understand. When you sign any international treaty, you are allowed to express reservations. Any of you studied public international law? Probably quite a few. Not so many. So, um, and questions might arise as to, are you allowed to make a reservation to any treaty? You sign a multilateral, let's say it's a multilateral international treaty and my country wants to sign it. So I, I say, I make a reservation. Is it a permissible reservation? We don't know yet, but you might guess that if I make a reservation that this treaty will apply only to foreign states, not to me that will not be an acceptable reservation because I just want the benefits and not the obligations. That's probably not going to work, and of course it wouldn't. Uh, I might say uh, this treaty will not apply to such and such territory in the, in the uh, Antarctica for which we have a mandate. Okay, that I, I don't want, I'm signing it on France, but it doesn't apply to our territory in the Antarctica. That you might think is okay. Uh, because it, it, it isn't, it isn't one-sided. Who knows which way that plays out. Um, but you have, a, you, you have a sort of a doubt. Are you allowed, what types of reservations are you allowed to make if the treaty doesn't say anything about reservations? So a lot of treaties will actually specify which reservations you're allowed to make so that you know, because otherwise it might get very technical. Uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about Neither do I. Just imagining an example. Say there's a treaty and one country says, we'll make an exception for any cases involving insurance companies traded on the stock exchange. Okay, what, what treaty is this? Well, we don't know. This is a technical provision. Obviously it has something to do uh, w which might make it relevant to the particular case I'm thinking about. There is a logical reason why that reservation was made. Is it legitimate or not? We can't have any idea about this. But the people who negotiated the treaty because should have thought that this might be of relevance to insurance companies of certain types and there might be a reason why this reservation either would be made and it's acceptable or really shouldn't be made because that's exactly 
the kind of situation we wanted to apply to. So it's frequent in international treaties that you stipulate what reservations can be made. The New York Convention does contain such a stipulation. It says you may make certain reservations. So you may make those and no others. And they are? Reciprocity and commercial. So, um, reciprocity and commerciality. So each state that signs the New York Convention is allowed to say this convention will not apply in areas which are not commercial in nature. Uh, for most common law countries, this is a bit mysterious. In a lot of civil law countries, they understand it immediately because there's a civil code and a commercial code. And there are rules about arbitration being more easily accepted between merchants people who are involved in commercial activities. So they immediately get the point that, that this is supposed to be restricted to commercial matters and they think of it, a commercial matter is one which is between two people in commerce uh, or possibly uh, one person in commerce and the other not, but maybe if it's only for prospective disputes. Remember we talked about that the last time, kind of restricting it just to disputes that have arisen. So that's the commerciality, and it's, it's, it's given, given rise to some problems which we won't talk about tonight. Uh, a lot of subjects, obviously, in, in international arbitration, which you cannot do in two evenings. Now, what's the reciprocity reservation? Say it slowly so everyone understands. I was hoping, looking forward to hear from you. Oh, ah, okay. There are two. One is the, uh, there are two. One is regarding the, this is in Article 1, 3 which talks about the definition of what is commercial under the national law. We just did that. And the first one is regarding the application limited to convention award that the parties to the convention. What would you expect to be a condition of reciprocity? You should quickly have an idea. Just think about what I just said about the first the first instance judges and it goes on to appeal and they start think they start having wiser thoughts about this. So what might you imagine would be a reciprocity condition? Okay, define each other. Just say it in a sentence so I know what's covered. I hereby make the reservation that I sign this convention, but it will it will only apply to all those who countries will sign the convention. Well, the award doesn't apply to countries. I mean, the the beneficiary of the award is a party that has won an arbitration award, right? So, start over. What would be the condition of reciprocity? I the, I, the receiving country, I'm the judge, I have a reciprocity con uh, condition, somebody brings a foreign award to me and, and now I want to understand exactly what the reciprocity condition is. The condition is that I will, I will enforce this award as long as... This award is enforceable in the other country. Sorry? This award is enforceable in the other country of the party which is trying, she's trying to enforce the award. So here I am in France and I have... <coughs> The old case we talked about last week. So in, in this case, if, if this award will be enforceable in Finland, you will enforce this award in France. And why Finland? Uh, because the, the party that's trying to enforce the award comes from Finland. 
That makes a lot of sense, but it's completely wrong. <laughs> the, reciprocity uh, uh, the reciprocity condition in the New York Convention, this is, this is just what it says, so you just have to accept it. The reciprocity con condition says that I, the judge, recognizing that the New York Convention applies in my country, notice that there is the reciprocity con condition. This reciprocity condition says that I do not have to enforce a foreign arbitral award unless that award comes from another country which has also signed the New York Convention. That's different. That would be, what did we say? Switzerland, whatever. Wherever the French and the Finnish ended up agreeing. So it will be Switzerland. So I, the judge, will check to see whether Switzerland has signed the New York Convention. Switzerland, Switzerland was ha which has no interest in this case in terms of being on the side of either of the parties, or really the transaction has no connection with Switzerland. There's just nothing except the arbitration happened to take place in Switzerland. So quite important. Lots of countries have made no reservations at all. And plenty of them have made both, and some have made only one. If you don't make the, reser the reservation, then an award that comes from a country which hasn't signed the New York Convention is also acceptable. And by definition, we don't care about the country which the party having won the arbitration comes from. So as to maximize the chances of enforcing your arbitration award when you're actually drafting the arbitration agreement, don't agree to any place which hasn't signed the New York Convention because you're reducing the scope of application of that convention because quite a few, quite a few countries, not all, have adopted this uh, reciprocity reservation. Uh, of course, I mean, not beat around the bush. The fact that almost 150 countries have signed the New York Convention, thereby creating what I call the magic of international arbitration, doesn't mean that you're guaranteed enforcement in 150 countries. Some countries apply the New York Convention very loyally, and others don't. There are some countries who, who signed the New York Convention a long time ago, and you cannot find a single instance of ever seeing a foreign award enforced in that country. And you can find quite a few where they have been rejected. So it seems that there is no end to the inventiveness of how they can reject it. But these countries are a minority, and they tend to be uh, not among the leading trading nations. Uh, and as I said, as people are really involved in international commerce, this is a two-way street. And they think about their own citizens as well. This is something which will be extremely relevant to the PRC, the People's Republic of China which in early years they signed the New York Convention and uh, people who were promoting arbitration in China said don't worry, yes, yes, we respect the New York Convention and we will apply it, we will apply it. For a number of years it was very difficult to find any Chinese decisions that did not reject the foreign award. Somehow they found a reason to reject. This is changing and of course China is now becoming an important exporting country and for all the reasons we mentioned with regard to the Finnish and the, the French, they get in that situation as well, and they want to be able to agree to arbitration and rely on it and collect their debts under contracts. So you get a different attitude uh, because it's a two-way street. 
So that's, um, should I say, that, that, that's kind of the, how we see the New York Convention in operation before we get into some nitty gritty. What was the world like before the New York Convention? Let me first of all say that the New York Convention isn't entirely alone. There's something called the Inter-American uh, Arbitration Convention, which actually copies the language of the New York Convention. A lot of people say it's, it's completely useless. And I'm close to joining that club, but I'm afraid of offending somebody, so I tend not to say it. But I, I, I don't think anybody would cry if this would disappear. A lot of Latin American countries for a number of years were reluctant to sign the New York Convention. But signing something which was inter-American was okay, so they signed it. It contains exactly the same thing. So um, that reluctance has dissipated to some extent, and you have lots of cases in Mexico where they have signed the New York Convention, they apply the New York Convention, and if you ask a Mexican lawyer, actually I have, uh, the, the chairman of the, Mexi of, of the Mexican Bar Association uh, gave a speech saying he, he would really be in favor of annulling the Inter-American Convention because it confuses people. We have, we have exactly the same text, it's global, and we should just go with that. So, but it, it still exists, and once in a while there's a case. There are hundreds of cases under the New York Convention every year, um, and, and in fact hundreds of them actually are reported. Under the Inter-American inter Treaty there are very few. Once in a while you see one and all the specialists, oh, have you seen? But it's the same language, so you can only be interested if they do something different with the same language. Uh, there is something called the Geneva Convention of 1961, also known as the European Convention, which you don't need to worry too much about, but uh, there's nothing preordained about having one international convention. It's probably better just to have one so that we can all concentrate on it, but there's also this European one, which was thought to be a little bit more liberal than the New York, which was thought to be more pro-arbitration than the New York one. It's 1961, so it's a bit odd. You had one in 1958, and just three years later, the <laughs> Europeans think of the European one. Uh, but not that many European countries have signed it. Um, and Burkina Faso has signed it, so it's an odd <laughs> European convention. Uh, but there you have it. That's, uh, th there are some occasional cases that fall under that convention, and it does have different language for the New York Convention. But for all intents and purposes, we focus on the New York Convention. But what was life like before 1958? That's instructive to think about, because then we'll understand what was the advance of the New York Convention. Remember uh, that after, I was suggesting to you that after World War I, which is a particularly nasty war, uh, many good things people of good intentions were focusing on ways and means to foster peace. And one way is peace through trade, because we, we develop a stake in each other, and then we don't want to harm each other, because if I kill you, you're my buyer, and that's not going to be good for business. So uh, business is good for peace, it is thought. Uh, in order to have harmonious international trading, we need to find a way to resolve commercial business in such a way that people will rely on contracts. They know that if they have a contract and the contract is not respected, there will be some place they can go and get a neutral decision in their favor, because I'm, I'm assuming I am correct, I have a debt which is not being respected, and that that award, so the award will be in my favor because it's decided by neutral people, and once those neutral people have decided it, it will be enforced, including by my opponent's home country. Very important. How do we do that? Now, 
back in those days, there wasn't very much international trade. It was a funny world. You don't know much about it, and I wasn't around either. There weren't very many countries back then, actually. Um, maybe not. I would, I'm pretty sure that it's less than half of the number of countries we have today. I think a lot less than half. Decolonialization hadn't occurred yet. And international trade kind of tended to be <coughs> intra-empire trade. So sort of India and England, and it's not really kind of, it's within the same sovereignty in a way. Or the Soviet empires, Kazakhstan and Belarus, and they have their ways. It's not really, it's the same legal system in terms of the ultimate judicial authority. So it's not really the international world we know today with so many sovereign states with entirely separate legal systems. That's what you had. Furthermore, trade was not done electronically and it wasn't, there wasn't so much business in paper. So if I were a French company that was international in the first instance, it probably meant I was doing something in Germany, probably just across the border. And probably I'd set up shop there. And after a while, my employee there speaks German. And so I'm kind of operating, I happen to be French, my French is it's my French business, but I'm operating in a pretty German way. And if I have a dispute in Germany, I go to the German courts and, and it ends up being a business I have in Germany. But now we have something else. We just have contracts. And we have contracts in a multiplicity of countries and we need to see how this is going to work. Neutral arbitration. Neutral arbitration. How do we achieve this? So they start thinking about this really in a systematic way in the early 1920s. The initiative comes from an organization which was created then, 1921, called the International Chamber of Commerce, which I suppose you've all heard about. The International Chamber of Commerce happens to exist in Paris, but it's an international organization. It's a federation of national chambers of commerce, one from each country. So the ICC likes to identify which is the national chamber of commerce of whatever country it is, and that can be the member of the ICC. And businesses can join as well. They're in a different category. Individual businesses can be members of the ICC. One of the, the ICC does many things. It, um, it lobbies in favor of trade. Uh, it um, thinks of rules, bills of lading, uh, uh, conditions of trade, the INCO terms you might have heard about, so that people can refer to standard international practices for ordinary types of contracts. And they set up a system of arbitration called the Court of Arbitration of the International Chamber of Commerce. Twenty years ago it's changed its name, so it's now the International Court of Arbitration of the International Chamber of Commerce. That's the leading ar arbitration institution in the world. But they had some problems in the absence of international law. In the absence of international law, what would a German court think of an ICC arbitration award rendered in Paris? doesn't have to be Paris. You can say ICC arbitration in, in New York. It it's, happens all the time. No problem at all. Or Colombo, Sri Lanka. No problem. 
but let's say the award is rendered in Paris. What does the German court think of that? It doesn't know what it is. It's this thing from France called, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's in English, arbitral award. That is not a German word. It might be a sentence arbitral. It's not a German word. What it is, it doesn't seem to fall under. Why would it fall under anything in the German code of procedure that talks about arbitration? Why would this thing from France fall under that? What's the jurisdiction of the German courts? So, you come with the award to the German court, and the German courts just don't know what this animal is, and why should I respect it? Oh, it comes from France. So, we don't have a treaty for the enforcement of judgments, but, um, sorry, we, we, but we, we would enforce an award on the basis of comedy. Some of you know this. But it's not a judgment. So, I can't do it on that basis either. Moreover, if we're in the situation that the debtor doesn't now, the arbitration starts, and the defendant, the respondent, doesn't want to arbitrate because it doesn't like the neutral forum, it would, it would prefer to be in its own home courts. So the party that's about to be sued in arbitration goes to its own court and starts a case, let's say making a claim, which should have been a counterclaim, but making a claim, or just asking for a declaratory judgment, if that's possible, saying, I don't owe anything. And you, judge in my country, should decide that. So the French party says to the German judge, you shouldn't hear this case because I have an arbitration clause. Well, assuming that the German judge knows something about arbitration, back then, um, the next thing that the judge hears is that you have an arbitration in Paris. Look, I, I'm sorry, I'm a German judge. What, what do I care about arbitrations in Paris? Do whatever you want to do. In the meanwhile, I don't see any objection to my jurisdiction. I'm going to hear this case. Because, well, if you told me there's an arbitration in Germany, and if I recognize arbitration under the German procedure, perhaps I would know what this animal is. But that's kind of unusual. So, it was thought in the international community that it would be good to have a convention to create international law which would ensure that national courts would respect this new thing which was coming into, into gestation. So let me mention the, the, the instruments that were created at that time. Anybody know what they are? So what was the Geneva Protocol of 1923? It applied only to arbitration agreements and not to the enforcement. The enforcement was supposed to be done by the respective national courts. Well, who else could enforce? At that time, there was no convention. But who can, who can enforce anything anywhere if it's not the national court? So the only national court could do Yes. So, say it again. So it recognized the uh, arbitration agreements but the enforcement uh, was a problem. The, the exhibition <laughs> award was only by its national, uh, according to its national laws. So you have, quite right, 1923, I was looking for the name, the Geneva Protocol on Arbitration Clauses. The Geneva Protocol on Arbitration Clauses. What did it say? Very simple. It says, that 
courts should defer to arbitrations when you showed the court that there wasn't an arbitration agreement. So that's pretty useful to have because otherwise it's an international arb an arbitration clause in an international contract wouldn't be of much use. So that was good. So now if a dispute arises under a contract that contains an arbitration clause, and there's no problem of validity and so forth, um, the judge is not going to hear that case, but will defer, will defer to the arbitral tribunal. That's really good. So the arbitration takes place, and the award is rendered, and the defendant doesn't pay. So now what do you do? You go to the defendant's home court, in many cases, most cases perhaps, and the judge in that country says, okay, so you had this arbitration in France, um, so is there, do we have a treaty with France? We don't even have a treaty for the enforcement of judgments. So this thing, you had the award and, and the German courts, I saw my my fellow judge down the hall didn't hear the case because you'd agreed to have this arbitration. So what? So you had the arbitration. And so you won, and, and so you sh he should have paid voluntarily, but he didn't. So I guess you have a dispute. So I'll hear the dispute. Where does it say I have to respect the award? So, oops. The international community thought of another instrument, which is the Geneva Convention of 1927. Uh, on the enforced execution, it was called, of foreign arbitral awards. So you had this expression foreign already back then. It set down a number of conditions for the enforcement of awards. It required certain things. Uh, and in the equivalent of Article 4, which is the uninteresting article of the New York Convention, which, but nevertheless is the cornerstone, it says you have to enforce foreign awards. Uh, it uh, set down what you're supposed to do. For example, so that the local court could understand it, if it was in a foreign language, it had to be translated, and it had to be certified, this is the award, and it had to be signed, and you had to show the arbitration agreement, all the sort of things that you would expect to give you some comfort that the judge should lend the power of the state that this thing should be forcibly executed in this country. Well, in thinking about all the things that would be required to reassure the judge in the place of enforcement of the award, in that Geneva Convention of 1927, they added the following provision. They said that before you come and enforce this award from Paris in Germany, you have to get a declaration from the French courts that this is a final binding arbitration award. Some of you come from countries where you have something like this expression. It's an exequatur or a homologation. It's a certification by the judge that he has seen this award, he's verified it, and he considers it to be a good award rendered in Paris. I'm the judge of Paris. I assure you this is a good Parisian award. That makes a lot of sense in a way. Everything, most everything that people do in, in legal texts and, and in judgments uh, have some logic to it. But then some 
occasionally you have severe problems in practice, and this turned out to be a big problem. Do you see what that might be? Here is, what, think of our Finnish and French situation. We agree to arbitrate in Switzerland because it's a neutral place. But now under the Geneva Convention of 1927, let's say I, the French party, win, the Finnish party doesn't pay, and so I go to Finland to enforce this award, but I can't do it. I will get no help from the Geneva Convention yet. First, I have to go to the courts in Geneva and ask for the court in Geneva to listen to me while I tell them about the arbitration. I show the arbitration agreement, I show the signed award, and I listen to the Finnish party complaining about something that went wrong in the arbitration, why this shouldn't be recognized. And finally, I get my exequatur, and lo and behold, the Finnish party appeals or challenges that decision by the judge and says this was, shouldn't have been granted and we can have a merry-go-round for several levels. Actually in Switzerland uh, there could be quite a few because Switzerland is a, is, is, is a confederation as you know. So you have cantonal courts and, and then a federal tribunal. So this is really not what we have in mind when we want arbitration to be sort of one-stop shopping yeah, you get your award and you enforce it. Well, this is not turning out to be that way. It's turning out to be a bit of a nightmare where suddenly I bought into maybe a decade of litigation in Switzerland where the Swiss judge in the first instance might also not know much about international treaties and he looks at this and then he says, well, what do I care about this case? French party, Finnish party, why am I wasting time? Well, it will not be the number one priority perhaps for that Swiss judge to get busy and think about whether or not he should grant this exequatur. So this turned out to be a problem. You, 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 uh, those of you who will study arbitration will become familiar with the expression double exequatur. The problem with the Geneva Convention is that it created a system where you needed double exequatur. It's shorthand for possibly multiple exequatur. In other words, you need a recognition of the award from the place where the award was rendered, even though you had no intention of seeking to make it effective in that country. That country has no interest in it, and yet you have to get this piece of paper from Switzerland. And then you have to get the same thing from the country where you want to enforce it. And if you're in bad luck, and you need to enforce it in several countries, you will need an exequatur every time. Well, that's, that's normal. There's a, there's a limit to how much you can do. But nothing can happen under the Geneva Convention of 1927. Nothing can happen until you get the exequatur, the recognition of the award, from the place where the arbitration award was rendered. So, fast forward to the 1950s. The ICC thought, again the ICC is behind this, the leading arbitration institution, generalist arbitration institution in the world, and they present the idea of international arbitration awards. Let's take a giant step forward and we'll have a convention for the enforcement, recognition and enforcement of international awards. The world, as I said, wasn't ready for it, and so you had the New York Convention that eventuated as we have it. But it did away with the double exequatur. 
It's not international awards because it is recognized under the New York Convention that there is a connection. There is a connection between the enforceability of the award and the place of arbitration. That connection is no longer as strong as it was under the Geneva Convention because you don't go, need to go to the judge before you do anything else and get this certification of enforceability. But it's the reverse. You might succeed in paralyzing or actually uh, 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 completely neutralizing this, the prospects of enforcement if you go to the courts of that country and get them to annul the award. So you see, the, the onus isn't on the successful party to go to the court and get, get an okay to enforce it someplace else. The onus is on the losing party to go to the courts of the country where the arbitration was, uh, was held, tell the judge something awful happened in your country and you have to do something about it, please annul the award, and then that annulment becomes a possible objection under Article 5, one of, that's another one, invalidity of the arbitration agreement or lack of due process, or here it is, Article 5.1e, that the award has been set aside in the place where it was rendered. So that's the remaining connection. But the winning party doesn't have to tarry in the country where the arbitration was held, can go right to its favorite place of, 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 of uh, enforcement and seek for the enforcement of the, uh, seek the enforcement award right away. You get your first and only exequatur in that place. So, why is so Article 5 has seven subsections, but they're divided into two parts. So it's 5-1, and then there are five exceptions, or five groups of exceptions, and then there's 5-2, and you get a couple more. I suggested that you look at this and explain to yourself if you're going to have a list of seven things, seven objections that you can make to an arbitral award, why in the world would you divide them into five and two? Anybody figure it out? But why, why, why? How does that explain why it falls into the second group of two? Why? Why couldn't you just add it to the list? So because uh, the first part, which has uh, about five, five grounds, these are the grounds which could be common and which could be defined uh, easily in a focused manner vis-a-vis this uh, on the, on vis-a-vis uh, five uh, two on public policy. 
I don't know what, what you mean, really. Uh, if, if you're saying that the, f the, first, the first group of five grounds um, are general and don't depend on national law, that wouldn't be right, would it? Because if you look at the first five, five one, the first five, you see all sorts of possible interventions of national law. Uh, but these are narrowed down, they're restricted. Which? So these five, they're narrowed down. Why? Is due process narrow? Not narrow. The, these, uh, these sections, these, these are common problems which you face in arbitration. So that would be the reason these are common things on which states could agree, but the public policy has been kept separate. I be wrong. But states agree on all of Article 5. It's in the treaty. Sorry? Yeah, actually, that's, that's uh, much less intellectual. It's just, you look at it and you realize if you just read the language very carefully, you see that under 5.1, the onus is on the resisting party. The resisting party can say, you, your honor, you should not enforce this award because I fall under one of these five grounds, which I will prove to you now. And 5.2 is, you know, for a practicing lawyer, it's completely different. Because 5.2 says that here are two additional grounds, and this give an excuse to the judge, a reason, a justification for the judge, not to enforce the award on his own motion. Can you imagine a case where you would have one of the grounds under 5-2, one of these two, where the losing party resisting enforcement wouldn't raise it? I lost a case. I'm a lawyer. My client lost a case. It's bringing me in front of my courts. I look at the New York Convention and I see that the really good one is public policy. That's the big whammo thing and I love to argue it's against public policy. Can you imagine that I wouldn't raise it? So what's the relevance of this 5 Two, is it for you know, to give a break to stupid parties that don't think of this big argument? <coughs> it's an obligation of sorts in the courts to ensure that they're not enforcing an award which is contrary to their own national laws. It's an obligation. Um, obligation is perhaps. A, um, it, it's certainly a possibility. It's certainly a possibility, which means that the court might do it even though I don't raise it, let alone prove it. I don't even raise it. Can you imagine cases in which I wouldn't raise it? Could be a case where you don't know, like for example, corruption, like you find out in various mm -hmm. instances. Or very simply, it could be a case where I'm not there. It's a default case. So even in a default case, the judge will say, I see this award, here comes this, here comes the lawyer for the winning party. He says, hey, hurry up. They're not here. I mean, they're bastards. They never paid. I won the case, of course. Yeah, I've got the award. Please stamp this. The judge says, hold on, hold on. I know they're not there, but let me have a look at it. He says, I don't like this. Um, where was notice to that party? He wasn't given notice. Prove that he got notice. You can't prove that he got notice? Well, I don't think I'm going to. That's against public policy. Okay? Actually, uh, that's quite necessary there because... The judge has no business running around Article 5.1.
because that's up to the party to be there and to say, look, I didn't get notice, and that would work for due process. But now it's public policy, so it's, it's that eye level. So quite an important distinction between 5.1 and 5.2. Questions about the New York Convention? Now, I'll tell you something about the New York Convention that most practicing lawyers don't know and don't learn until they, until they go to the great courtroom in the sky and find what somebody tells them. But you can find out now. The New York Convention is not a regime for the enforcement of arbitration awards. What do I mean? The New York Convention doesn't tell you what, 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 what is a regime? A regime would be a set of rules that regulate a particular issue. The issue would be the enforcement of awards. New York Convention doesn't do that. If it did that, it would tell national courts when they should and when they shouldn't enforce foreign awards. The New York Convention, does this sound strange? People practice even in arbitration for years and years and years and they, they still, have, still don't figure this out. The New York Convention does not tell courts when they should and when they shouldn't enforce awards. The New York Convention only tells courts when they must enforce awards. It's a huge difference. A national court, this is the thing that people go to their graves without figuring out. A national court cannot breach the New York Convention when it enforces an award. Impossible. Because the New York Convention does not tell you when you're supposed to not enforce. It just tells you when you're allowed not to enforce. And if you're not under one of those exceptions, Article 4, you shall, you shall enforce. So it's actually, does anybody have another way of saying it? Yes. What it imposes is a minimum standard. It says, if you see an award that meets these standards, you must enforce it. What if it doesn't meet those standards? The answer is? This is up to you. So, one of the world's most pro-arbitration countries is France. It signed the New York Convention right away. France, French courts never apply the New York Convention. They never apply the New York Convention. You will never see a French case enforcing an award and saying, by virtue of New York Convention, this and that. Why? Because French law is more favorable to enforcement than the New York Convention. So if they just apply French law, there is no risk that anybody could criticize them for failing to respect the New York Convention. And there will be some circumstances when under French law, awards will be enforced. Watch what I say. Awards will be enforced even though it wasn't required under the New York Convention. I didn't say even though they must be rejected under the New York Convention. There is no such thing as an award that must be rejected under the New York Convention. You just learned something tonight. So, you'll hear people say, ah, the New York Convention regulates the enforcement of awards. It doesn't regulate. 
Because if it regulated, it would tell you everything you needed to know about enforcement or not enforcement. It's just minimum standards. Can we move away from the New York Convention? The UNCTRAL model law was intended for international commercial arbitration. The year is 1985. The United Nations Commission for International Trade Law decides to do the world a favor. This is another favor. They've, they have the UNCTRAL arbitration rules of 1976, which is parties can use it in contracts. Now they have a model law, which is not for, for private parties. The model law is a proposal to sovereign states. Here's a model law. You want arbitration? We thought, of, we thought about it all together under the aegis of the United Nations. We thought about it for five years. We had conferences twice a year. Hundreds of people from all countries around the world invited to the UNCTRAL working group, including experts and observers and what have you. And this is what we came up with. So it's non-ideological. The Soviet Union was there. People's Republic of China, Tanzania, Bolivia, United States, everyone's there and putting their two cents in until we get this text for a model law, which is common ideas for an effective regime for international arbitration, international commercial arbitration. Some countries liked it so much that they said, we don't want one law for international cases and another one for domestic. This is a really good law. This is our law for arbitration, full stop. Uh, other countries uh, said, well, we like it, kind of, but we like everything except two articles, so we'll change those two. Um, I guess that's good for harmonization because it's 95% the model law. But it's a little bit tricky to convince the international community to come to your country and have your arbitrations there, which is what a lot of countries like to achieve when they enact a new statute for international arbitration. So you had a lot of countries telling the world community, we have enacted the UNCTRAL model law. But then they know that lawyers will call them out if it's not really true. So they, we have enacted the UNCTRAL model law, almost all of it. So there's just one article where we put in a knot in front of the shell, um, which so you really want to see. Um, Another difficulty is, of course, that if you're talking about a country in which you don't understand the language, go to Albania, and Albania says we've enacted the model law, here it is, and you look at it, and it doesn't look like the model law you know, because it's in Albania, <laughs> which is normal, because laws in Albania, by the con under the Constitution, are supposed to be in Albanian. So you have the problem that you had in Hungary. So you see the problem. If you don't, if you don't copy it from A to Z, you, you'll have a hard time convincing people that it is the model law because they have to do homework and check it out. And what's the one that changes and you match it? No, ah, this one, yes. It just takes forever to figure out that the little variations are, uh, uh, are not damaging, damaging from your point of view. So the best thing in this way, unless you're a leading country, um, which, where you can say, we incorporated all the important ones. And since it's a leading country where you probably want to go arbitrate anyway, you'll do the work to double check to make sure that, oh yes, I see what they did, this is okay. 
But new entrants in the field are asking a lot if they say, we almost adopted the Ansatrol model law, uh, and you'll like it. Asking a lot. Even the ones that adopted it lock, stock, and barrel had some problems, like Hungary. Because in Hungary, the laws are in, guess what, Hungarian, which is quite a difficult language. So they took the model law and they translated it into Hungarian. But you would think this is not a problem, because they didn't change a word. They just translated it just the way it was. They limited it to international cases, and they said to the international community, you can now come and arbitrate in Hungary. We have adopted the model law. What could possibly be the problem? Just assume that the translation into Hungarian is an accurate translation. You can check it a billion times, but they're not lying to you when they tell you that. Problem. In Hungary, it turns out that there is kind of a lobby trade union law, whatever it is, that any translations of Hungarian law that represent that purport to represent the contents of Hungarian law has to be translated by approved Hungarian translators. And so you say, hold on, there is a text, sorry, we didn't start with the Hungarian text, we started with the UN text, it's written in this sort of perfect UN style English, which was agreed by people from a hundred different countries and has gone through all these sessions of work, and that's the text we started with. We translated into Hungarian, and that's the law we have. Translation, no, no, no. In Hungary, the law that's presented is that's the original in Hungarian. And we only accept our translations of that law. So they got a team of people to do a translation from Hungarian into English, which is, of course, one of the languages of the United Nations. And would you expect that that translation turns out to be word by word, the United Nations text? <coughs> Of course not. Really stupid. There is not in, no one at any stage intended to change anything, but you know some of these very good translators said, no, 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 that word in Hungarian, it doesn't really mean what they intended it, and we have to put it the way we understand it's in our law. Not such a good idea. Brilliant people were in Cyprus. Under the, under the Greek Cypriot constitution, all laws are in Greek. But somebody, some very pragmatic, they're, they're pragmatic commercial people, the, the Greek Cypriots, if anybody knows that place. Um, and they thought, what, what's this law about? It's the law for international commercial arbitration. Who needs to read it? Foreigners. So they will come here and arbitrate. Do they read Greek? <laughs> <laughs> Why do we translate it? <laughs> so there's a little law which is one sentence so in international cases it says in Greek the law applicable is in Annex A turn it over and there it is straight from the United Nations that you can sell <laughs> instant success I, I won't exaggerate this did not cause hundreds of arbitrations to come to, to Cyprus but immediately you started having arbitrations in Cyprus and it's one of the considering where it's located in the world you can see that you know you have a case between Iraq and Italy or something like that that's kind of a good place to show a neutral site for the arbitration and now that they have the, uh, the Uncertral model law uh, they, they succeeded that's the politics of it but what about the contents of it I'll talk only about one aspect of the of the uh, model law it's of course the model law says that if a judge is seized 
of a dispute, which is covered by an arbitration clause, he must defer to arbitration. That's what you would expect in a pro-arbitration country. So that's what the model law proposes. What about the arbitrator? You come to me, so this is what happens when I, have, I want to rely on an arbitration clause and my uh, co-contractant runs into court. So I go to the court and I say, look at Article 8. You're not supposed to do this because there's an arbitration clause. We have an argument, maybe, because uh, my opponent says it's an invalid arbitration agreement. We have that argument and the judge says, no, off you go to arbitration. That's the rule. What about the case where the two parties, the claiming party, starts the arbitration? And now, your colleague here comes in and says, eh, it's, that's an illegal arbitration clause, or it's invalid, or I didn't sign it, or makes up some sort of a story, says something to question the arbitration uh, um, clause. What should the court do, uh, the, the arbitral tribunal do? There, there are two... Let's not talk about jurisdiction to decide your, your own jurisdiction yet. Well, let me just say this. Let me say this. Jurisdiction to decide your own jurisdiction. The Germans call it competence, competence. The French say competence, competence. There's this funny expression. Your authority to decide whether you have authority, which seems like bootstrapping, doesn't it? It's lifting yourself up. Um, and so it, 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 the rule is that somebody can check it. But you have the authority in the first instance. Somebody says, I want you to be my arbitrator. Why? Because we have an arbitration agreement. And actually, we put your name down as the arbitrator, you see? And he says, no, it's an invalid agreement because he, he twisted my arm. Okay? It's coercion. What are you supposed to do now? He says, you're nobody. You're an illegal arbitrator. You're an arbitrator who, who purports to be sitting there on the basis of an invalid agreement. What are you supposed to do? You say, well, I'll wait until a judge has decided this. That's a big problem especially in the international context. Because if, it, if I have a major case, a case I care about, most people care about their cases, and it is sufficient for the respondent to say, boom, invalid arbitration agreement. You're out of your mind. Somebody has to decide whether that ridiculous argument is good or not. Or it might be, might be a colorable argument, might be a good argument, whatever. I say, I don't want to wait to go to court, and then to appeal, and then to the Supreme Court, and then finally be told I go back to arbitration. I've just wasted years, and he's probably squirreled away his money someplace, so I can't get at it anymore. Real prejudice is caused to me. I want to have my arbitration. And I want the arbitrator to decide whether the arbitration agreement is invalid, and I want him to give me an award. Okay. If the arbitration agreement is invalid, let the court reject the award and, and, and not enforce it. But why should I be stopped from having the arbitration? Now I represent the defendant. I say, I'll tell you why you should stop and let me hear this case in court. Because I'm right. My objection is a valid, but you don't know. My objection is correct. Assuming that my, my objection is correct, by, what, by virtue of what reasoning should you oblige me to spend time and money presenting my case in front of you, all the while I have this 
cloud hanging here, which is my objection, which you have to imagine could be valid. And what if you make me spend this money and have this arbitration, and at the end I go into court, I raise my objection, the court agrees with me. Who's going to pay me back for those costs? You can have this discussion till kingdom come. You cannot say who is right and who is wrong, because sometimes it will be the claimant who is right. And this is a bum argument. And sometimes it's a good argument. So what, how, what compromise are we going to find? The, you can imagine that in the Uncitral working sessions, this was discussed hour after hour, day after day, and month after month, because there is no absolute right answer. The compromise that was found is Article 16, and it's, it's a thing of, I think it's a thing of beauty. As compromises go, if you sit in United Nations negotiating sessions, as I've had uh, the pleasure to do, where one's sentiments vacillate between feeling suicidal and murderous, <laughs> it is a wonder when they come out with something good. And this model law is pretty good. And Article 16 is the nicest thing of it all. It's a compromise. It says, if the arbitral tribunal has been constituted, we're before the arbitral tribunal. There is an objection to the, to the arbitrator's jurisdiction. The arbitrator says, first of all, I said that already, all modern systems, the arbitrator has the authority to, s to go forward and decide whether he thinks he has jurisdiction. He might be the only person in the world, but he doesn't have to stop. He can decide whether he thinks he has jurisdiction. And that could be checked by somebody else, court someplace, maybe in the place of arbitration, maybe <coughs> in the place of, of performance. But he doesn't have to stop. That's what you need to know about compétence de la compétence. He doesn't have to stop. Does he have to go on? No. So that's the beauty of Article 16. Article 16 says, faced with this objection, I say, go on, go on, go on, go on. Hear my claim. He says, no, stop. This is a, this is a, this is a, this arbitration clause was procured by by coercion, and it's invalid. Um, you will, you, the arbitrator, will have discretion to decide first of all whether you think that's the. Garden variety competence la competence. So you say you do have you think you have jurisdiction, your opinion. And now, do you want to suspend the arbitration and allow this to be debated in court, or will you just go ahead and decide it? And of course, you can decide it, and you will render an award. And if you render an award in his favor, there won't be a problem. If you render an award in, in my favor, probably he will raise it in court, and then you'll see what happens then. But you're done. Alternatively. You have this discretion to say, I don't know, it's, I'll, I think I have jurisdiction, but I'll stop now. Let him go and find out from the, from the judge, I'll feel better about it. So that's a thing of beauty, because you can weigh, you the arbitrator, yeah, I feel this sounds, you know, I think I have jurisdiction, but that's a pretty serious argument. I'm not so sure. I would feel more comfortable if the court decides. And the, the really great thing is that you can weed out all the bogus objections, which you would have all the time if the arbitrator had to stop and couldn't, couldn't proceed. Arbitrator looks at it, I think I have jurisdiction, 
I'm sorry, I'm going forward. You have to present your case on the merits and let's see where we go. The competence de la competence, though it's a, this fancy phrase, and you, know, you have it in the German version, and some people say that the German version is a little bit different from the French, and that gets into technicalities, and uh, you have to see what, what is the French notion of competence de la competence. Uh, but the basic idea is so simple, you really don't have to think of it. It's a, it's a mere procedural rule which says what I said already. When faced with an objection to jurisdiction, the arbitrator can decide that. And that's very common and has been common for many generations in international arbitration because otherwise international arbitrations could be stopped by national authorities and you, you want it to be international. So in treaties that create international courts, Invariably, you will have a condition saying the court decides its own jurisdiction. In, in commercial arbitrations, this can be checked by the court. And obviously, it's going to be checked by an enforcement judge if the losing party keeps saying there was no jurisdiction. The severability of arbitration clauses is something very different. It's a bit more complicated because that's a rule of substance, not a rule of procedure. And it's often confused. It sounds similar to competence de la competence. It's not similar at all. It's related in the sense that these are two important rules for arbitration-friendly jurisdictions. But they should not be confused. And too many people do. The handbook, not the yearbook, ICCA, they have the yearbook, which publishes, among other things, all the decisions under the New York Convention. ICCA, ICA, also has something called the Handbook of National Reports, which consists of reports on the arbitration law of most countries of the world. The beauty of the ICA Handbook is that every report has to follow the same outline. So you can have a systematic approach to looking for the thing you're trying to find in the national legal system. What the editors of the ICA handbook have found, when their, their authors go through the list, they say, do you have jurisdiction, do arbitrators in your country have jurisdiction to decide their jurisdiction? They'll answer that. And then somewhere later in the list, there is, do you have, are arbitration agreements severable in your jurisdiction? And you would be amazed at how many authors would say, yes, we have jurisdiction to decide jurisdiction. They think it's the same thing, and it isn't. The severability of the arbitration clause, you will find it time and again in arbitration rules. So there is a severability provision in the ICC rules. And it's not called severability provision. It's, it says what it is. And what it says is something like this. Any claim that a contract is illegal or invalid shall not, by virtue of that sole fact, necessarily result in the invalidity of an arbitration clause which is contained in that contract. Right? It doesn't use the word severability, but you see that's what it means. It means that the arbitration clause is to be analyzed as though it were a separate agreement. Why should that be so? I say this contract was signed between you and my agent. My agent is a crook. 
you corrupted him. And he signed on my behalf, because he was my apparent agent, a contract which is hugely unfavorable to me, and it contains this awful arbitration clause, which I don't like at all. And he only signed it because it's a really wonderful arbitration clause from your point of view, and you got that by paying a bribe. So tell me about the severability of the arbitration clause. The whole contract is null and void. What aren't you understanding about this? The whole contract including the arbitration clause. Well, that's actually a wrong argument because of the severability of the arbitration clause. That rule, the severability rule, says that even though the contract is illegal, invalid, or whatever it is, that illegality, that invalidity, does not necessarily affect the arbitration clause. You have to make a specific proof that the arbitration clause in particular was invalid. Maybe there's a law that says you, you're not allowed to arbitrate mm, distributorship agreements. Okay. Well, that would be specifically geared to the arbitration clause. Um, but the idea then is that the arbitration clause survives, which means that the arbitrator can decide whether or not the contract was, the general contract as a whole, was illegal or invalid. This doesn't make sense to a lot of people, and we've had a number of cases. Um, a few years ago, there was a case in, uh, in Florida uh, where the Florida Supreme Court, nine to nothing, rejected arbitration. The contract was alleged to be a usurious contract. It was one of these check cashing places, people who run out of money at the end of the year, poor people, so you kind of, you start off being a bit irritated at the lender, because these are people who run out of money about the 20th of the month, and so they go and predate a check, and they give it, and so they pay $200, and the operator gives them 150 and doesn't cash it until the first of the month. So, that's against the law on usury. The lender put in a clause calling for arbitration. So, one of the borrowers didn't pay and insisted that this should be heard in court, saying this is illegal under the law of Florida. Now, assume this is illegal under the law of Florida. This $50 ends up being a huge percentage, and it's, it's beyond the rate which is tolerable under the law of Florida. And the Florida Supreme Court said, well, yes, <laughs> this is an illegal contract. It contains an arbitration clause. So what? It's an illegal contract. The entire, and, and you read it, and this is written by eight and nine intelligent, unanimous judges of the Supreme Court of Florida. And I assure you, there's not an idiot among, among any of them. The arbitration community in the United States says, well, this, of course, is going to go to the Supreme Court, which accepts to hear cases only in something like 1% or 2%. Is it even that? Very few cases are actually accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court. And all the arbitration specialists said the Supreme Court has to hear it. And the Supreme Court is going to say unanimously that this is a wrong decision. We're not even worried about it. And so, and so the U.S. Supreme Court did even though you can see the logic of the Florida court, but this is an arbitration, uh, 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 an anti-arbitration conception. You have to let the arbitrator decide, and he can decide that the contract is illegal. Let's say the arbitrator gets it wrong. 
see you again when you get to the enforcement stage. The Florida judge is not going to enforce an award which has been rendered by an arbitrator who exercises jurisdiction, heard somebody say, hey, $50 out of 200, you know, that's more than 12% or whatever it is the rate for usury, and therefore the contract should not be enforced. And, and the arbitrator disregards that argument and says, no, you have to pay. Now you get to enforcement, the court is going to look at it and says, that's against public policy, guess what? So that, the control occurs at that level. Now for the exam. <coughs> you, want to, you want to see how you did? There's an entire course on international arbitration. And so those of you who, are, who would like to know what grade you get, uh, you can actually you know, discipline yourself and see what you think. Put it down, you'll see how you do it. 17 questions. This was given in a course two years ago. One student out of 70 got all 17 right. Uh, and if you got 15, 16, or 17, you got an A uh, on the curve, okay? So here's one. A special submission agreement, A, involves more than two parties. B, gives jurisdiction to national courts. C, creates jurisdiction with respect to pre-existing disputes. D, may be revoked by the respondent. Do it again. Special submission agreement. A, involves more than two parties. B, gives jurisdiction to national courts. C, creates jurisdiction with respect to pre-existing disputes. D, may be revoked by the respondent. I'll make it worse for you. 93% of the class got this one right. Which therefore is? C. 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 Okay. Uh, don't cheat. <laughs> here's, here's a nastier one, apparently. Only 56% of the class got this one right. And it's easy. It's true or false. It is possible to arbitrate a tort claim. True or false? False. True. True. It's unlikely that you're not going to have a contract with somebody you have an automobile accident with, but once you have the accident, you can make a special submission agreement. It's, okay. Three. Which of the following functions do neither the ICC court or the LCIA court perform? Which function does neither organization do? A. Administer funds used to re remunerate arbitrators. B, decide the merits of international disputes under contracts containing arbitration clauses. C, remove arbitrators for cause. D, appoint arbitrators when parties fail to do so. B. 78%. Very good. Four, what is a two-tiered arbitral process? A. Arbitral decisions may be corrected by a higher arbitral body. B. Arbitral decisions may be corrected by the courts. C. Two different arbitral rules may be applied. D. Jurisdictional decisions must be separate from the award on the merits. A. 85%. 5. Which... There's some rougher ones coming. Which of the following may be a disadvantage of ad hoc arbitration? Which of the following may be a disadvantage of ad hoc arbitration? 
A. Parties may be put in a delicate position of negotiating fees with the very arbitrators who will decide their case. B. Our applications to remove arbitrators may have to be submitted to courts. C. It may cause significant delays in the constitution of the tribunal. D. All of the above. D. 95%. Okay. We're done with the easy street. Six. International arbitration has the particular advantage. Sorry. Institutional arbitration <laughs> has the particular advantage of A. Detailed procedural rules. B. Ensuring that awards are enforced. C. Giving parties a way to evaluate arbitrators. D. None of the above. All right. It's uh, none of the above. Institutional rules typically say the arbitrators will decide the case applying the procedure they think appropriate in the circumstances. That's not detailed procedural rules. Okay. Uh, which of the following organizations does not administer arbitrations? Uncitrol, A, B, ICC, C, LCAA, D, AAA. That's 100%. Okay. Double exequator is A, security for cost in the event the award might be annulled before enforcement. Security for cost in the event the award might be annulled is required before enforcement. B. Arbitrators must be approved both by the courts of the place of arbitration and the place of enforcement. C. A judge of the country where the arbitration was held must approve enforcement anywhere else. A judge of the country where the arbitration was held must approve enforcement. Must approve before enforcement anywhere else. D. An order for enforcement by the court of a place of arbitration is required before the award can be enforced yeah. anywhere else. It's D. Who, was, who thought it was something else? Okay. It, it's, if this were an exam, you'd be able to read it a couple of times. So now you'll see. A judge of the court of the country where the arbitration was held must approve enforcement anywhere else. No. Okay. Uh, what's missing from the title of the New York Convention? Okay, you can see this is too fresh in your minds. Only 73% of the class got this. They were reference to public policy. What's missing from the title of the New York Convention? You could, answer, you could, you could say yes to all of these. Reference to public policy? Yes, it's not in the title. Uh, reference to arbitration agreements, you got it? Reference to neutral arbitrators? It's true, it's not there. But, yeah. uh, reference to proper procedure? Yes. So only 73% got, got that one. But that was because the exam was not the, like minutes after the discussion. Um, what is 
Oh, yeah, this one's easy for you as well. What, what is a correct statement of a way in which New York Convention Article 5.1 differs from Article 5.2? A, degree of seriousness of defect. B, burden of proof. C, arbitrability. D, Article 5.2 is secondary. Right, you go. What? When states party to the New York Convention have made the reciprocity reservation, it means that the treaty covers only cases where A, the place of arbitration was in another country which is also party to the New York Convention, B, the party invoking the New York Convention comes from a country which has also ratified the New York Convention, C, the state where the New York Convention is invoked was also previously a party to the Geneva Convention of 1927, D, the award has already been approved by a court in the country where the award was rendered. Who says? You said B? The party invoking the New York Convention comes from a country which has also ratified the New York Convention. What is A? The place of arbitration was in another country which is also part of the New York Convention. So you were saying it has to be the Finnish party, when in fact it has to be the Finnish courts. It's the Geneva Court. Okay. Um, you think you know the answer, but you have to you have to listen to the candidates. That arbitrators have jurisdiction to decide their own jurisdiction means that it's not as easy, not as, easy as you think. A, it is not for the courts to decide whether the arbitral tribunal had the authority to decide the dispute. B, the arbitral tribunal must make a separate decision on arbitration. C, the arbitral tribunal does not have to stop and wait for a court decision as soon as a party challenges jurisdiction. D, the arbitration may go ahead even if the contract is defective. C. 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 Okay. There were, the others were a little bit, each one kind of would tempt you if you... 90% uh, got that one right. Here's a hard one. It would have to be hard. If the concept of severability of arbitration clauses is accepted, four things. A, if the concept of severability of arbitration clauses is accepted. A, arbitrators can be sure they have the right to decide jurisdictional issues before those issues may be reviewed by a court. B, arbitrators will always have jurisdiction even if the contract was fraudulent. C, courts may nevertheless reject arbitration under a contract if there is a defect that concerns the arbitration clause itself. D, none of the above. So 44% correctly said C. You have a thing about Bs. <laughs> B in your bonnet. <laughs> Let's work that out, but it's, it's, it's understandable. That, that was a, a lot of people said B. Arbitrators will always have jurisdiction even if the contract was fraudulent. Always. When would they not? Uh, it does not deal with the 
they will, they will consider their own jurisdiction. Well, you're saying that the arbitrator might exercise jurisdiction and find that the contract is strong. But it doesn't, it doesn't say that. It's, it says arbitrators will always have jurisdiction. Even if the contract was fraudulent. They, they, they will decide they have jurisdiction or not. Then they have jurisdiction. And they decide whether the contract is fraudulent or not. So they do have jurisdiction. I mean, it, it will not be always. Uh, when is it not? Why is B wrong? When, when, does he, when does the arbitrator not have jurisdiction to decide that a contract is fraudulent? Okay. But the ICC rule says that, uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, the invalidity or nullity of a contract shall not affect an arbitration clause. No, but the arbitration clause itself is invalid okay. or inexistent. So uh, the reason this, this is wrong, arbitrators will always have jurisdiction even if the contract was fraudulent if the fraud specifically went to the arbitration clause. So you can, that, it's interesting to think about the fact scenario, but you can imagine that there was a trick about the price and there was also, you know, you didn't know, I talked, the, the, the International Court of Arbitration of Strasbourg, whose president is my brother-in-law, that is going to be a problem. You're, the arbitrator will not have jurisdiction because I go immediately to the court and say, that is the arbitration clause. Why the severability, why shouldn't we, if you explain this to a layman, there's always a severability. Why should that be that way? Well, if it weren't the rule, you would give a big premium for a stupid formality. If there was no severability of arbitration clauses, every good practicing lawyer would say, okay, here we go again. We're an international thing. We don't want to go to national courts. We want international arbitration, and we don't want any messing around in courts. So, okay, here we go again. We have a 50-page contract, and then we have the arbitration clause, which we're going to sign separately. And if you forget to do that, you know, tough luck. You're not going to have severability, and you'll, you'll be messing around in courts for years. Why give a big prize for that formality? Because of the importance of severability. But there is a big logical problem there. It's just necessary to make international arbitration work. Two more. The IBA rules of evidence. You'll have to guess this one because we didn't talk about it. The IBA rules of evidence can be used to replace the arbitration rules of other institutions. Are obligatory in countries which has adopted the Uncitral model law. Are supplemental to the applicable arbitration rules. None of the above. Very good. 85%. Here's the easiest one. Oh, no, next easiest one. <laughs> Why is Article 16 a cornerstone of the model law? A. It gives considerable authority to arbitrators to determine whether a jurisdictional objection justifies an interruption of a case. B. It ensures that jurisdictional objections ultimately are decided by the courts. C. It, it, it upholds special submission agreements under which parties have agreed that non-contractual claims may be subject of arbitration. D, it was agreed by a consensus of national delegations to Ancetral. Okay. You could, B is not incorrect, and D is certainly correct, but that doesn't explain why it's the cornerstone of the model law, of course. Um, you have to guess this one as well, but since we want to go through the, this is the final one of the exam, we didn't talk about the IBA rules of evidence. What do you imagine? 
since you're so good at this. A, under the IBA rules of evidence, actually you'll learn just from listening to this question, all experts must be appointed by the tribunal. B, written witness statements must be sworn before a notary public. C, cross-examination of witnesses is allowed. D, it is not permissible for one party to obtain documents which the other party prefers not to disclose. So let me t tell me why each one is, tell me the ones that are wrong. Why is A wrong? All experts must be appointed by the tribunal. Well, in some countries, like France, that would be very usual. Because the courts usually appoint experts. Parties don't appoint experts. So that would be very usual. Common lawyers hate it because they sort of lose control of the process. It's not, you know, it's sort of the, the judge or the arbitrator is in the middle and I present my case and he decides who's right. But the inquisitorial system, the judge appoints the arbitrator. So since this was an effort at consensus in the international community, it would be very difficult to say all experts must be appointed by the tribunal. It would be just as difficult as if the common lawyer said, no, 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 we want the rule, experts are always appointed by, e by each party. The French would say, over my dead body. So the compromise is that, is that either or in, indeed both can occur. <coughs> B, written witness statements must be sworn before a notary public. Why, why would you think that that might not be in the IMU rules of evidence? Because it's weird and national and formalistic <laughs> and, and you wouldn't expect it just doesn't sound right. Sounds old-fashioned and this is not intended to be a question. Cross-examination of witnesses is allowed. That's the great concession by the civil lawyer saying, well, you know, we'll go along with it. It's, uh, we understand it and there were some quiz, quiz and pros, but cross-examination was allowed. And D, you would have, you know, by, at this point you've eliminated A and B and you get to D. It is not permissible for one party to obtain documents with the other parties prefers not to disclose, okay, we can scratch that one, and even if, you, if, even if you hadn't figured out, you'd be there with C. So, you did very well, congratulations. 